Greetings, friends. It's Thursday, March 16th, and we got some uh, Chapo coming at you. Um, joining us today is all-time returning champion from foreign exchanges, from American Prestige Podcast. It's Derek Davison back again to give us our presidential daily briefing on <laughs> things, you know, things that happen outside of America, on the rest exactly. of the world. I just want to say, to uh, I want to uh, preface this by saying, if I freeze up at any point during this interview, I want the listeners to know it's because I heard producer Chris Wade on a hot mic say, fuck them kids before we started recording. <laughs> and I'm very emotional right now. I'm very, pretty shook up about this. And so I just want everybody to understand uh, that that's, that's what happened. Well, what happened is you suffered a microaggression. I, I, exactly. That's right. I, mean, so I suffered a microaggression. Somebody disrespected and- your lived experience and made you feel othered. And therefore, you can't be held responsible for what I you said uh, right. on exactly. camera. Exactly. Uh, well, let's see. Well, well, let's let's hopefully hopefully this interview won't produce any viral moments, <laughs> except in, except in the good sense of Derek Derek being erudite on point and spitting facts about the world instead of sputtering like a dumb baby. <laughs> All right. Well, let's begin uh, in 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 the world in the world of diplomacy. The world of diplomacy. There's big big doings going on with negotiations, treaties, things of that nature. And I want to start with um, a deal brokered between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now, let's begin here because uh, this seems like it could have uh, potentially big ramifications for the the future of the Middle East. But crucially, I mean, if people say America isn't a great power anymore, what country other than America could have brought Iran and Saudi Arabia together? Two, Two foes, but then America at the negotiating table, bringing the two parties together, showing that we still matter in the world. That's right. The greatest country in the world, the mo- the country where um, the only country that could have made the World of Warcraft movie profitable, America. <laughs> so, so Derek, you know, this has got to be, there's a big win for the Biden administration. You know, this is... Uh, oh, this absolutely. Is like- yeah. Um, it's, uh, so the, the, if, if people have not heard, this deal was announced uh, on Friday uh, and... Uh, technically, technically, uh, the Iranians and the Saudis have agreed to restore diplomatic relations. They've agreed to go back to a couple of uh, past deals that they had broken. Uh, technically, they did this uh, in China, and it was brokered by the Chinese government. What? But as oh, as many what? people in the Biden administration, Never mind. okay. Fuck this. Fuck okay, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. wait a second. Wait, no one saw Derek. World of Warcraft in America. <laughs> Derek, okay. Uh, okay, just okay. Sorry, uh, slight slight revision here. Um, how does this potentially threaten the stability of the entire region? I mean, okay, it's it's it will be amazing, frankly, if anybody is still alive to listen to this uh, when it comes out, because <laughs> that's how dangerous things are. Um, now, I, I I mean, I th- I want to be clear though, as many people uh, in the Biden administration have said, and I think you know a couple people in the U.S. military, a couple of officers have said, uh, essentially, you know, China got the lid off, but it was the United States that loosened loosened it. Okay, oh, yeah. so China opened the pickle jar, but we 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 did all the hard work. We were you know uh, sort of banging it against the counter, running it under exactly. warm water, exactly, uh, um, complaining about an old football injury. But I mean, <laughs> okay, uh, kidding aside. What like how how do you rate the role that China like actively played in this? Like because the thing is, this deal uh, probably could not have been brokered by America because we do not have any relations with Iran right now. 
Right. It, it so, absolutely could not have been brokered by the United States. And, and the, the evidence of that is that the Biden administration, since it came into office, has been trying to position itself as uh, a peacemaker in Yemen, uh, which is a conflict that is uh, at least tangentially related to this and could be affected by uh, this deal. And, the, you know, the, the Yemeni rebels, the Houthis, uh, have told the Biden administration over and over again to, to go pound sand because the United States took sides in that conflict. And that's the same, you know, it's the same thing here. The United States has taken a side in the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. It's taken the Saudi side. And you can't then try to position yourself as an honest broker uh, in peace talks. So this could not have been uh, done by the United States. What what the, the two sides agreed to uh, on Friday is to reopen uh, their mutual embassies in Tehran and Riyadh, uh, they closed those uh, in 2016 after the Saudis executed a Shia cleric preacher. Uh, you know uh, the Saudis Namir al Namir, uh, and right, uh, uh, also Rouser. is also his son, I believe. His, uh, yes, I, 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 believe I never his really confirmed well. that. I never confirmed that. But he was. I mean, he was at least sentenced to death. I, I, I yeah, like you. I have. I, I don't know if he was ever actually uh, executed. And you know, the Saudis keep people can keep people on. Uh, death row for uh, you know an interminable amount of time, um, but you know following that there was a there were protests in Tehran. There was an attack on the Saudi embassy that the Iranians claimed was sort of a spontaneous grassroots thing. It was probably the besiege uh, group, the paramilitaries that are affiliated with the the IRGC, and you know the Saudis uh, were quite displeased with that. They closed their embassy. The the Iranians did likewise. So they haven't had. Uh, direct relations for uh, about seven years now. Um, they also agreed to revive a couple of past agreements. As I said, there was a t- 2001 security cooperation agreement and a 1998 agreement on, uh, you know, mostly economic cooperation, commercial cooperation. Uh, the Saudis are already talking about investing uh, heavily in Iran uh, if if things go well here. Uh, so that that you know those those agreements were also part of this. Um, what, sorry, real you quick, know, it, what would they, what would the Saudis be investing in in Iran as a result um, of this deal? I mean, you know, they, they, there's a lot of. I mean, they could invest in pretty much anything. I, I, they probably steer clear of energy, but um, you know, there's a, a wide array of uh, sectors that they could invest in. Obviously, the Iranian economy. Uh, doesn't have a lot of inve- foreign investment coming in right now, and of course you'd have to contend uh, with U.S. sanctions. But uh, you know, for the for a country that's got a, 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 the resources that the Saudis do, it's fairly uh, straightforward to create cutouts or do you know sort of do things to get around that. Uh, the UAE does. Dubai still has a, you know a tremendous uh, level of economic involvement with Iran despite sanctions, and and the, you know companies get blacklisted, entities in Dubai get blacklisted fairly frequently, but. Um, I, I suspect these things are set up to get sanctioned They're without uh, kind of firewalled off. They're, they're firewalled off from the rest of the, uh, the economy. Um, what, um, you know, I, I, to, as far as the Chinese role, I think, uh, you know, obviously they got this over the finish line. The Saudis and the Iranians have been talking uh, for uh, several months, you know, a year or more, uh, you know, kind of off and on 
uh, through various regional intermediaries. The Iraqi government has very, been very invested in trying to bring them together for obvious reasons because Iraq is sort of stuck between these two poles. Uh, the Omani government, which typically you know likes to get involved or views itself as kind of a regional mediator, broker, fair deal, you know, kind of friends with everybody. Uh, they, they've been involved. So, I mean, this isn't something that came out of nowhere. It's not something that the Chinese government uh, did from scratch, but but they clearly, you know, were uh, were able to bring it over the the line. It it does sort of speak to the um, the power of China's incredibly milquetoast foreign policy statements. I mean, people like people on Twitter, like American China heads, like to act like it's fucking still 1971 over there. But whenever China talks about, you know, Israel and Palestine, it's indistinguishable from like, I don't know, Ralph Nader in 1999. We, you know, we want an equitable two-state solution. But they are, they're incredibly normal and non-committal with most foreign policy things to the point that, you know, they're allied with the Philippine government against Maoist rebels. Um, I mean, this is sort of the other side of that, though. They're actually able to do these types of Kissinger-type deals that America has no capability of doing, outside of the landmark Abraham Accords, of course. (laughs) Of course. Ending, ending, you know, the... The brutal war between uh, Morocco and Israel that has claimed millions of lives <laughs> over the decades. Um, I mean, it is interesting because you're right. When when uh, China's foreign policy is uh, very hands off, they want to do business with everybody. They don't take sides in conflicts that don't directly involve them. So, I mean, if it's not Taiwan or if it's not uh, you know, Japan and and the East China Sea, or or, or one of the you know, it's not India and the border, or whatever. Um, they they have tended not to take sides. What I think one of the things I think is interesting about this uh, is if the Chinese government now is going to view itself not just as the kind of commercial partner to the world, but is going to try to position itself as a peacemaker or a guarantor of of peace deals uh, like this one. Um, are they going to be able to maintain that? Because, you know, at some point, uh, I, I think it's fairly likely uh, either the Saudis or the Iranians are going to accuse one another of doing something that violates this agreement. And it's going to be expected that China would step in and moderate that in some way. And that could mean taking sides or getting you know closer to taking sides in a way that they've tried to avoid. So it's going to be interesting, I think, uh, to see how that plays out. Well, is it, isn't that just sort of like them adopting the traditional role of the United States? I mean, like, how do you rate <laughs> right. the, impo- the importance of this actual like peace treaty? Because it seems to be like negotiating like these these uh, banner peace treaties in the Middle East and then like that do nothing and are actually really one sided. Uh, that that's America's purview. They're stealing our shine. <laughs> they're, that's right. They're they're horning in on our territory. Um, yeah, no, it is. I mean, it is getting closer to the role that the United States plays without uh, the military aspect. I still don't think China has any designs on kind of you know occupying three quarters of the world with the uh, you know hundreds of military bases, but. Um, it does put them in a more political role than they've been in the past. And I, that's, I mean, the, the, the fact that the U S takes on that role is part of the reason why 
uh, it had positioned itself, like backed itself into a corner to the point where it could not have done this deal uh, because it has no way of communicating with the Iranians or any credibility uh, on the Iranian side to to do something like that. Well, I guess they're going to get to find out. Uh, it's not so easy, is it? Huh, China? You get to be like, oh, look at these idiots <laughs> fucking it up. And then you, you, you give it a shot. See how this goes. And I mean, like, uh, I mean, you brought it up like it seems like the one of the main ramifications of this will be like the potential for ending. I mean, like the situation in Yemen, like it's killed nearly 400,000 people over like the, the, the this period of this conflict. The hostilities have like uh, sort of been tamped down for a while now. But like, could 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 this lead to a permanent like ceasefire or like an end to the war in Yemen? It's possible. It could be a, a contributor, a contributor certainly to a permanent ceasefire. Uh, I, there are so many unexplored fault lines in Yemen that I, I hesitate to say it's going to bring peace because you still have the issue of uh, southern separatists who are going to, you know, uh, look askance probably at any peace deal and and could revolt. You have, um, you know, still uh, I think an unsettled political situation in the North where the Houthis have kind of, you know, managed to get most of the tribal elements on their side, but, you know, is still uh, not entirely sure. I'm still not entirely sure how that would look long-term. So, you know, I I don't, I, 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 I'm reluctant to say it's like the key to, you know, Yemen, uh, Yemenis living happily ever after, unfortunately, but. Well, the Houthis uh, are often, like sort of describe like you know they're they're thought of as kind of like iran's cat's paw and like a the proxy war like did, how, how do the houthis feel about this deal and are they gonna are they gonna stop attacking saudi targets uh, as a result well of this, if so iran tells them this to? is just just got reported um the, the the wall street journal claims that uh, according to u.s and saudi officials that the iranians agreed to stop arming uh, the Houthis. Uh, I, I I think their sourcing on this may be a little bit suspect. Um, the Iranians do say that they will tell the Houthis, or did say, Iranian officials after the the deal was agreed, did say that they would uh, pressure the Houthis to stop attacking Saudi Arabia, which they haven't done uh, in months anyway. Uh, there's been this sort of there was a ceasefire in effect that lapsed in October, but they've been in a de facto ceasefire uh, ever since. There hasn't been a resumption of major hostilities. Uh, but in terms of arming them, uh, you know, I, I don't know that the Iranians actually agree to anything like that. Uh, if they do stop arming them, then that's going to kind of paint, paint the Houthis in a you know paint the Houthis into a corner themselves. Uh, they will, I think, uh, have to try to make some kind of peace arrangement. They'll be in a much weaker uh, position. Um, you know, again, uh, I, 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 they're not, they are not a cat's paw of Iran, but can they sustain a conflict, uh, if they're not getting assistance from Iran? Uh, that's, uh, that's, I think, uh, somewhat questionable. Uh, you know, like, uh, speaking of China's role in this, uh, I think we should, um, take time on the show now to congratulate, uh, President Xi on being reelected <laughs> for a third term at yes. the latest, uh, People's Party Congress. Um, it was really already, a nip and tuck there for a second. Yeah, um, he was, you know, unanimous. You know, it was a landslide victory. Um, yeah, and, and, and to, to all the people who are like, oh, you know, I live in New York. There's no point in me voting for Xi. <laughs> that just puts your responsibility <laughs> off onto other people to vote for Xi. Like, do you want Donald Trump to win? 
but just like I mean, he he's 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 proposing sort of um, some some reforms that would give him uh, more more power in 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 the, in the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but like, okay, but how do you look at like a a, thir- a third term for Xi? You know, like what's on his agenda, particularly as it relates to things that do concern China, like the. Uh, Japan and the East China Sea and the various disputed islands. Like, how do how do you see Xi's foreign policy, especially now that he's been you know uh, having a third term? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a, a, a China hand by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that there are you know a couple of things that are going to dominate uh, this third term. One is the I, I think the Chinese economy is in some sort of transition uh, from purely manufacturing based to something more service sector oriented. Um, you know, that, that probably means lower GDP figures. They are ramping up military spending, you know, whether that's because they envision starting a military conflict or because the United States, uh, can't stop talking about a conflict with China. I suspect it's more the latter that they're, you know, kind of hedging their bets in case there is a war. You know, I think it's, it's going to be a, a, there's going to be a lot of economic, uh, issues that, that kind of dominate this. Uh, next period, the the Chinese population shrank for the first time in decades last year, and there are forecasts that have it continuing to shrink. It's aging. Uh, you know, these two things are obviously related. So that that's another thing. You've got a very aging. You've got an aging workforce and a, a shrinking population. What's that going to mean uh, for the Chinese economy? So I think there's a lot of domestic stuff uh, that will play a role. Climate change. Certainly, China is in uh, a position to be heavily affected by climate change. I mean, they already saw the, uh, you know, huge drought last year, um, you know, rivers drying up and, and some serious, serious repercussions. So that's a, you know, that's another potential uh, concern. Uh, foreign policy wise, I think, yeah, it's going to be sort of trying to uh, further this agenda. I think it's going to mostly be continuity. It's going to be furthering the agenda of kind of stressing a multipolar world that it's not uh, the 90s anymore the US is not the only dominant force um again that doesn't mean that China's out to control the world or to be the global hegemon which is the uh, the line you always hear from Washington I don't think that's the case uh but they do have interests they're going to continue to stress uh their con- their claims over the South China Sea they will continue to stress uh, they just had a little bit of a maritime dispute with Japan over the Senkaku or, or uh, Daoyu Islands in, in the East China Sea. Uh, they, they're increasingly uh, looks like there will be a serious competition for hearts and minds, I guess, uh, in the South Pacific and in the Philippines with the U.S. Um, so these are all things. And then, of course, there's the, the AUKUS a submarine deal, which you know, I, I want to get China, to, get to AUKUS, but uh, uh, you mentioned absolutely uh, China, about that. You mentioned Chinese soft power. I would just like to, you know, for any um, members of the Chinese government listening, I mean, like, if you want like a, a small investment that can go a long way in uh, bolstering soft power in the South Pacific or elsewhere, um, some small but like sort of well placed investments in the crucial podcast sector. I think absolutely. Yeah, I can think way. of a couple a couple of shows that yeah. would really help. Yeah, spread your All message. Right. Derek, you brought up Alcus, <laughs> and so we're gonna like move move down the Pacific Rim to Australia to what I regard sure. as like the most the most frightening and disturbing development in the the, the global in global <laughs> relations and the potential for peace <laughs> in the future, and that is. Um, the United States just agreed to sell between three and five nuclear submarines to Australia. 
Uh, we done fucked up. Why are we giving Australians <laughs> nuclear weapons or submarines at all? Yeah, so this is a, this was just announced this week. It was reported last week uh, that the U.S. was about to close a deal with Australia to sell them, uh, as you say, between three and five uh, Virginia-class nuclear attack submarines. Uh, Bi- Joe Biden welcomed... Uh, we, oh, wait, the, hold on a second. Can we just, why not just send them the nuclear defense submarines? Why? Why? The, why? Why? The, why? Why? I need for all this attacking? Well, see, weapons? I mean, the alternative is to send them the ballistic missile submarines, and I don't think we want to do that. So, this <laughs> no, is probably yeah. safer. This is probably safer, actually. I, than, I still don't like uh, it. I hate the idea of somebody bringing about nuclear Armageddon while wearing flip flops. It just seems <laughs> wrong. Or thongs, as they're known down there. Uh, I, I <laughs> mean, call, I, we can expand flip flops thongs. Yeah, idiots. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I think, I mean, they talked about expanding the deal to Poland, but they couldn't figure out how to get the screen doors on. <laughs> oh, so. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's, it's, sorry. Apologies to, to any Polish <laughs> listeners out there. Um, the, no need to apologize, uh, Biden, Biden welcomed uh, Anthony Albanese, the prime minister of Australia, and Rishi Sunak, the prime minister of the UK, the two other countries that are involved in AUKUS. Uh, to San Diego on Monday uh, to make the big announcement about this deal. So the the terms are essentially, uh, as you said, Australia has agreed to to buy these submarines from the United States. It's agreed to allow the U.S. to uh, base or forward deploy uh, attack submarines to Australia uh, that could then obviously be uh, used in or to patrol uh, the South Pacific or other uh, you know localities. Uh, and eventually, there is a plan to design a whole new class of attack submarines that's that are based on UK designs using U.S. technology. Uh, largely, it sounds like produced in Australia, so there would be a lot of manufacturing uh, goodies to hand out there. Um, Wait, I, I, that's be, will, that's okay, longer right. term, and I don't know if that's actually going to come to pass. But but the uh, these so first Australia, two phases at least Australia, they may begin developing uh, n- their own nuclear submarines. Will the introduction of nuclear reactor technology to Australia? How will that affect the the the, the constant war for the precious gasoline and the juice that runs everything over there? <laughs> You know, that's I, I, I would hesitate to to even try to comment on the 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 vagaries of Australian society. But, uh, you know, there is there has been I mean, one of the things that the Chinese have said about this is that, uh, you know, it's it's going to be a proliferation risk. Probably probably not. But, uh, you know, they're all anytime you talk about nuclear reactors and nuclear submarines that run on, you know, high, highly enriched uranium, there is. Uh, a potential issue for something to go very badly wrong. So just throw that out there. Uh, yeah. Uh, Australia's message to uh, China and the South Pacific is just leave. Just walk away. Give you a pump and there will be an end to the horror. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, like obviously like Australia and China have been um, 
sort of like uh, the relations between them have been thawing out recently. I mean, like they've had a contentious relationship there. How is this move to buy American and British nuclear submarines likely to strike the Chinese as they like, you know, uh, like o- open up like uh, trade agreements and like, you know, perhaps buying wine or kangaroos back again? It's interesting because, as yeah, as you say, they've they've had China uh, has been uh, essentially blockading or, or boycotting a number of Australian goods and and dealing heavy blow to uh, a number of Australian sectors for the past several years because relations were not good. Uh, they've stopped doing that, or they're kind of kind of winding that down, uh, and they've been making a lot of improvements in that relationship. I, it's I, I mean, it remains to be seen. Uh, if this is going to result in any backsliding, I, I, I question that it only because like AUKUS has been uh, around for, I mean, it, obviously this week was the big kind of introduction, you know, rollout announcement of actually, you know, what they're planning to do. Uh, so that could change some things. But the, the agreement itself in principle between uh, Australia, the UK and the US has been known for some time now. And uh, you know, China reacted angrily. Of course, you know the the uh, like everything else the U.S. does to counter China, uh, uh, the Biden administration was at pains to say this isn't about China. Don't say it's about China. Of course, it's about China, but they don't say that openly. Um, so you know, th- th- this thaw has been going on anyway, despite the specter of this agreement, uh, which was always going to involve some purchase of submarines. It was always going to involve some uh, U.S. basing rights in Australia. So it's not like a huge surprise that this is what's uh what's in what it entails i i don't know that the chinese are gonna react terribly negatively because I don't, I don't think there's anything in here that they weren't expecting uh and haven't been expecting even as they've been kind of uh, relaxing their their trade restrictions with australia okay well as long as we're talking about um t- uh, two nations that have been frosty with each other and sort of applying a, a blow dryer to, to those relationships. Uh, Japan and South Korea are currently um, engaged in a summit to sort of defrost those relations. But the point of contention is, once again, everything Japan did during World War II. Derek, what is to account for the difference between the way Germany deals with what they did during World War II and Japan? Because, like, <laughs> they're just like, oh, yeah, like, all those women uh, wanted to work for us. You know, like, I mean, like, what, like, this is, this is the thing is like South Korea wants Japan to like uh, admit to what they did to them in World War II. Right. So, I mean, there have been past uh, agreements that, let's say, the South Koreans and the Japanese uh, diametrically disagree or differ on, on whether or not. Uh, they settled the issue of reparations for people who were uh, forced to, to, you know, forced forced into uh, essentially slavery during the Japanese occupation. The Japanese government has always said, uh, "This is water under the bridge." Effectively, they were in, interns. In yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, they got they we're got valuable, valuable exposure. And uh, that's right. Life skills. Look, it was like a, we, an apprenticeship. Did we want that bridge over the River Kwai or not? You, know, you can't argue with results. <laughs> But those are British um, people. Yeah, that, those are those are the here. trade schools the Democrats are always talking about <laughs> in every state of the union since Obama. Look, it, uh, like, it's it's there in the name. The women were comfortable. All right, I don't see what, what the big deal is. You know, water under the bridge it seems fine. Sure. Um, so now the the new development has been that uh, Yoon Suk Yeol, the the president of South Korea, announced last week. Uh, a new plan to compensate uh, Koreans who were who were performing forced labor 
uh, under the occupation without requiring any contributions from the Japanese companies that were responsible or even any apologies uh, from the Japanese companies that were responsible. There, there was a similar effort uh, to do something like this uh, several years ago, but when Moon Jae-in, uh, the previous president of South Korea, was elected, he, he sort of scrapped it and, and relations got uh, fairly dicey between the two countries uh, for a while because he was really insistent on uh, some more forceful uh, kind of compensation or, or reparations from Japan. Um, this is all fueled by concerns about China and about North Korea. Um, the South Koreans want a, a united front with Japan uh, against North Korea. The United States wants these two countries to be on the same page because of China. Um, so Yun has made this this offer. It's generated a substantial amount of opposition in South Korea. Polling uh, is not good, uh, you know, from from Yun's perspective. Um, that doesn't mean it, it won't get passed. I mean, it's still fairly early in Yoon's presidency, and he has uh, legislative support, I think, to to do this. Um, but it, it could affect how the agreement is implemented moving forward. Um, again, obviously, the Biden administration is uh, thrilled by this. Yoon just visited Japan today, in fact, as we're a little bit before we recorded uh, on Thursday. And he talked with uh, uh, Kishida Fumio, the prime minister of Japan. They uh, talked about patching things up. They agreed to drop a mutual trade dispute that they've had for uh, several years now. So, uh, you know, it's all a, an attempt to kind of get everybody on the same page. Um, it, it, it very much remains to be seen how it will how it will actually work in practice. Has the uh, the whole unification church issue has that um, complicated matters for relations between South Korea and Japan? Not to my knowledge. Um, it's complicated things for Kishida. Obviously, I mean the popular kind of uh, upheaval over the revelations about the the Liberal Democratic Party's ties to the unification church uh, forced him to fire ministers. They forced him to make you know at least a couple, I think, uh, public apologies and promising to kind of root out the church's influence in the party. They, they've dealt him, his poll numbers are not good. His government's, you know, approval rating is not good. Um, really, I mean, you know, it goes back to, uh, I think, arguably the most successful political assassination in history, uh, which I, I don't know if you hate to see it or you love to see it, frankly. But, oh, I love um, to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, that's, that's more of a domestic thing. I don't think it's, it's really impacted relations, uh, between South Korea and Japan, at least not, you know, uh, this, this recent, I mean, the last, the announcement last week of this reparations idea, uh, kind of washes everything else, uh, away, I think. And, and they're trying to start from, from there. I mean, like, yeah, but like the, the whole unification church thing is also about North Korea and communism. Like, that's like they, they, that's how they got all the oh, money. Yeah. And like, it's just all about Absolutely. fighting communism in North Korea. I mean, that was a that was a like, you know, Gladio type operation, I think, yeah. to, you know, type operation as far as I, uh, I, I know. All right. Um, pivoting now away from Asia to uh, last time we talked about Ethiopia and the conflict there was with uh, John Dolan, the war nerd. But our, our Secretary of State, uh, Blinken, uh, was just in Ethiopia. David, could you talk a little bit about what he was doing there? So, uh, I mean, the U.S. relationship with Ethiopia, I mean, the U.S. regards Ethiopia as a vital ally to the extent that it regards any 
uh, anything in Africa as vital, which, uh, you know, it's not always in evidence, but uh, certainly Ethiopia, the, the relationship with Ethiopia is one that the, the U.S. seems to value. It took a hit uh, during the conflict because the, the Biden administration offered some, frankly, fairly tepid uh, criticism uh, of uh, Abiy Ahmed's government over fairly copious evidence of, of war crimes that were committed by the Ethiopian military and its allies, the Amhara Regional Security Forces and the uh, Eritrean military. Uh, you know, there were also uh, certainly crimes against, war crimes that seem to have been committed by the Tigrayans. Uh, but it was the, the criticism of Abiy's government that seemed to sting. And uh, the U.S. did pull uh, Ethiopia out of uh, the, the African Growth and Opportunity Act a program which is basically a duty-free trade scheme for African countries to uh, to kind of trade their goods uh, with the United States. So uh, th- there was some damage done uh, to this relationship. The war is, of course, over. Uh, they are trying to implement uh, a peace process, um, and the U.S. now essentially views the uh, you know few hundred thousand people who died in the war as water under the bridge. Uh, and is trying to rebuild the relationship with Abiy's government, and that was that was the point of Blinken's visit. He came offering, I think, around three hundred thirty million dollars in humanitarian assistance. Uh, he did not uh, announce that Ethiopia is getting back into the duty free program, but he made it pretty clear that they will uh, if the the peace process goes smoothly. And that's a that's a substantial economic deal for for Ethiopia. So um, you know, clearly they're trying to. Uh, mend fences to some degree here, I think, with uh, with Abiy's government. Moving on from uh, war to politics, let's talk. Let's talk elections. Let's talk presidential politics. So, Turkey, Meatball Erdogan just said there's going to be an election, but uh, meat, Meatball Meatball Recep, <laughs> he's uh, he's not looking good for him. He's trailing in the polls. Look, I mean, anything can happen in the election, but like, look, wh- uh, what's going on with these Turkish elections, and what can we do to help support our boy? Uh, Dr. Dr. Oz may have lost in Pennsylvania, but boy, (laughs) is he about to win back home. (laughs) Fucking Erdogan caught the Brandon ball. That boy is tanking. I mean, it's probably not a good good. thing. It's not great to have a giant, massive, horrifying earthquake hit your country. And then there's a video of you going, yeah, yeah, I made a deal with all these guys so they wouldn't have to follow any of these uh, earthquake safety regulations when they built any of these things. It's pretty great. <laughs> so, yeah, the earthquake is interesting. I mean, not only has he been accused of uh, doing sweetheart deals to allow construction companies to, to you know, not uh, build up to code. He admit it. Uh, there was a there, there. Turkey has a disaster relief fund that it taxes people for and it, uh, you know, has had in place uh for a number of years now, since the last time they suffered a, a, a major earthquake. And it turns out, oopsie, uh, we handed out, like we used uh, all the money in that fund to pay for like infrastructure projects uh, that benefited Erdogan's pals. Uh, and and you know, it's, it's not good. It's not good folks. Um, it's interesting because I haven't, there's, there's been some polling that suggests that maybe uh the earthquake hasn't had as much of an effect on Erdogan's uh, popularity as you might have thought with all the, the scandals that kind of came up uh, in terms of the response, in terms of this you know highway infrastructure issue and the, the building stuff. Uh, that said, he was already struggling uh, because Turkey's economy has been 
really grinding for a long time and and uh, inflation is high uh, economic growth is is not good people are unemployment is high people are not terribly satisfied uh, and so it looks like he may be vulnerable in this election now the opposition uh, there's a coalition of uh, six opposition parties. Uh, that decided to run a single candidate in the election this year and to run as a single slate uh, in the parliamentary election. Uh, they coalesced behind the leader of the Republican People's Party, Kamal Kilic Darulu, uh, who I, I would argue is the weakest uh, of the possible candidates they could have picked uh, for a number of reasons. He's a little older. Uh, you're really looking at an election where the opposition needs to appeal to the youth. Uh, he's tied to uh, an era in the Republican People's Party history that is not uh, necessarily uh, all that popular. So I, I you know, I, I, I don't know that he was the smartest choice, although uh, he was probably the safest, let's say, but maybe not the best. Um, that said, polling uh, since uh, the announcement, since they unveiled uh, Kirish Darulu as their candidate to no great surprise, uh, polling has showed him leading Erdogan by, you know, in some cases, 10 points, 12 points, 14 points and winning in the first round, finishing above the 50 percent threshold. So uh, avoiding a runoff uh, polling also suggests that the the coalition uh, could uh, win the parliamentary election uh, collectively, you know, shows them pulling in uh, somewhere between 43 and 47 percent of the vote while the. Uh, AKP Erdogan's party and the the MHP the the Turkish Nationalist Party that allies with them uh, brings in a collective thirty seven percent maybe thirty between thirty seven and thirty nine percent so that's another thing to watch for the HDP which is the leftist uh, and predominantly Kurdish party that is not part of the opposition bloc polls at around ten to twelve percent which is I think comfortably over the uh, the threshold now Erdogan would very much like to outlaw the HDP prior to the election it remains to be seen whether he'll be able to do that uh, but HDP could be expected to uh, ally itself legislatively on on big issues at least uh, with the Kilish Darulu's coalition they may also endorse Kilish Darulu uh, which could have a, that that could be a double edged sword because getting the endorsement of the Kurdish party or the uh, leftist Kurdish party more uh, specifically could alienate some voters uh, that Kilish Darulu might need. So uh, you know that's another thing to watch for. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not looking great for Erdogan uh, from from a polling perspective. Turkish elections are firmly in the free but not fair category, so I don't think there's anything that Erdogan will do to just outright rig the vote, but he will try to make sure that the opposition is unable to campaign. He'll use all the media levers at his disposal, which is, uh, which are a lot uh, to steer coverage toward, you know, to make his coverage as favor, you know, as positive as possible uh, and as negative as possible for the opposition. So, uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of campaigning to do and it's going to be very, fairly one-sided I would expect. So it, you know, it remains to be seen. And the election has been called, but when when will when will when will it be held? Uh, it'll be held on May 14th, I believe, and then uh, you know there will be a runoff round if uh, none of the presidential candidates get uh, gets over 50 percent of the vote. So let's say you're 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 a meatball recep right now, like you got you got a couple months for this election. You're trailing in the polls. 
what's he got to do? Because, I mean, what you're saying here, this is sort of a, it's not the, it's not the earthquake, it's the economy, stupid. It's, it's one of those kind of elections. So, I mean, like, what are the contours of, like, what's being uh, contested here between uh, AKP and the opposition coalition? So the first thing that I, I noticed uh, today, actually, is the, the party put out, the uh, AKP put out its, its manifesto for the election, and it sounds like they are um, promising a more orthodox economic policy. Erdogan has this thing about uh, high interest rates. Uh, the, the economic orthodoxy is when inflation is high, you raise interest rates to bring inflation down. Erdogan hates raising interest rates. Uh, and he thinks he essentially thinks that inflation is a foreign plot against his government. So, uh, you know, he views the, the, you know, the idea of raising rates, which brings a, another, you know, a different set of uh, of challenges and problems. He doesn't want to do that. So he's been cutting. He's been ordering basically the central bank to cut interest rates. And that hasn't worked. It hasn't stopped inflation. Uh, so it, it sounds like they're promising to bring maybe bring back some people who have. Uh, left Erdogan's government because they disagreed with his economic policies, or you know, or he you know kind of punted them out of his government get, because get, they get Larry Summers with them. over there. Get him um, in the yeah, maybe they could bring Larry Summers in. That's uh, that, that's an option. I think we should uh, we should communicate uh, that to the party. Um, so so you know, it just basically sounds like they're gonna, they're saying you know we, we're we're over the the kind of madness here. We're gonna just uh, do what the economists tell us to do, uh, which you know maybe may be a mistake too, but uh, is is at least something different. Um, I, I, I expect he will try to be uh, or somewhat generous uh, over the next, uh, what's it going to be, two months now uh, with uh, maybe some, maybe a little welfare goody here, or a little, you know, kind of pay, uh, public payout here and there to, to uh, get people feeling good about themselves, stimulus payment, whatever. Um, as I said, he's going to try, I think, and has been trying and will try, I think, fairly hard to outlaw HDP uh, before the election, which could change the dynamic somewhat. Uh, it's possible that some of HDP's voters will come to him. I would suspect more would go to the opposition, but who knows? Um, so, you know, I, th I think it's going to be a lot of that kind of uh, those kind of machinations. And again, as I said, he will make sure that the campaign is a very one sided uh, affair and that the opposition doesn't have a lot of room to maneuver. You heard it here first, folks. Don't count him out. I will. I will never count out touchdown. Air no, I definitely would not count them out. Even if the polling looks bad, there, there's, uh, there's no. I would not be doing any victory laps if you're anti Erdogan. Okay, uh, moving on from uh, Turkey, uh, let's go now to uh, you know the State Department's favorite conflict, uh, Russia Ukraine. Uh, there's a bunch of things to talk about there. I know you've, you've recently written about this grain deal, but let, let's begin with um, a Russian plane clipping one of our drones over the Black Sea. Could you talk about what the implications for this are and like what are the chances that this was a deliberate uh, provocation? So, yeah, this was very sad. That drone was just a couple of days from retirement uh, <laughs> and uh, it had a family. So, you know, I, I feel like uh, it was very sad. It, it was uh, sad just two incident. weeks away from becoming a chat bot. <laughs> <laughs> It's gonna it's gonna evolve to AI status, yeah. Uh, yeah. So this uh, this happened on uh, Wednesday, uh, the or no Tuesday, sorry. Uh, uh, the uh, there was a U.S. Uh, Reaper drone. Uh, I love that name, Reaper drone, which of course was only there to do surveillance. We're not trying to drone strike anybody, even though it's even though it's called Reaper. It's just yeah, it's just just taking pictures. Um, nothing to see here. Uh, so the the Reaper was flying over the Black Sea, and it was drone. 
taking uh, pictures. Exactly. Yeah, you could call it that. That that would be probably a nicer name. Yes. Um, it was intercepted by two Russian uh, aircraft uh, that apparently uh, first tried to dump gasoline or air fuel. Uh, on the drone in an f- effort to, to kind of, you know, uh, ruin its sensors or its cameras, whatever. Um, and then did uh, like a, and the U.S. put out video of this. So the Russians were denying that that they did anything reckless to try and uh, get the, the drone off course. But the U.S. has put out video that purportedly shows uh, Russian pilots uh, acting very aggressively toward the drone. Uh, they, they did some close passes, okay, but- some buzzes. And at one point, uh, one of the Russian planes struck the propeller uh, of the drone, and the drone then subsequently ditched into the Black Sea. I, I think that that part at least uh, was uh, unintentional because I can't imagine it, you know they could have very easily taken both aircraft down. You know the the Russian uh, plane could have crashed as well. I can't imagine any pilot would risk something like that just to kind of bump a drone. Uh, I mean, into the Black Sea. That seems ridiculous. So I, trying, I, I trying assume to like, that was to, unintentional. Trying to do like a, an aerial pit maneuver seems dicey, but <laughs> I, I didn't know about dumping gasoline on the drone. Like in any of the footage of this, is there any chance that one of the Russian pilots said something badass like Schwarzenegger style, like need a light? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Tom Cruise would not have let this happen to him. Let's just say that. Uh, there, there's no chance you would see something like this in a Top Gun I'm just movie. thinking, like, if, okay, like, the next Mission Impossible movie, if Tom Cruise dumps gasoline on a drone, then pops the top and, like, flicks a cigarette out at it and then jumps out of his plane as the fireball consumes both of them but does it in real life to an American <laughs> Reaper drone over the Black Sea, potentially starting World War III, I think that would be dope as fuck. That, that would, I, I still think that the next movie should have a scene where he... Uh, does another halo jump but lands on top of a chinese balloon uh and brings the balloon down that that would be the stunt i'd go for but uh yeah the the drone thing has some potential but i guess like i i want to talk about the the grain deal in a second but just like you know like the the, the contours of the russia ukraine war i mean both sides are 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 saying they're inflicting heavy casualties on the other. And like, I don't have any reason to disbelieve that. I guess just like, do we have a scale of just how many people have died in this conflict over the last year or so? I, I, I haven't seen a good one. Um, you know, there are estimates. The, all the estimates come from the other side. So I don't trust them, right? I mean, the, the estimates of Russian casualties all come from either Ukraine or like the UK Defense Ministry or the United States. And I don't, I don't. I don't think there's any reason to believe them. I think the best you can do is to say uh, both sides say they're inflicting heavy casualties on each other, and they're both probably right. Uh, that's that's about as far as I would go, especially in this latest, uh, you know, kind of uh, conflict around Bakhmut, which is where things have been uh, sta- stable uh, more or less for uh, you know several weeks now. Uh, you know, I, I, it sounds like it's probably a meat grinder for for both sides. Maybe a little more for the Russians because they're attacking, and the Ukrainians have the advantage of defending. Uh, but I don't see any reason to think that that um, anybody's getting off uh, particularly light here. Who's got Bakhmut? Who's winning? <laughs> Who's winning the goddamn so, war? Uh, the Russians have the eastern part of Bakhmut, which is separated from the rest of the city by the river, the Bakhmutka River, which runs runs through it. That's 
pretty pretty much confirmed at this point. I mean, the 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 head of the Wagner Group, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, announced this. Uh, I think a couple of weeks ago that they had control of the eastern part of the city, and uh, you know, it was kind of dismissed at the time. But the UK. Uh, military has now since said they believe the Russians are in control of that half of the river. And there's uh, all the evidence suggests that they are. The fighting seems to be concentrated now uh, on the other side of the river. But, you know, are they going to, you know, have they have they made any advances onto the, the other bank of the river? I, I haven't seen any evidence of that. The Ukrainians uh, destroyed all the bridges. Uh, so crossing the river is is fairly precarious under these circumstances. That's you know leaves you vulnerable to uh, artillery fire and a lot of you know uh, uh, things that you would rather avoid. Uh, it's it's been very grinding from every from all the accounts I've seen. And I think ultimately the Russians have you know more manpower to draw from. They're still. Uh, in a better position in terms of ammunition, in terms of being able to replace things that that get blown up or that that uh, get damaged. So uh, I, I assume that they will eventually capture the city. How much further they can go, though? I mean, they it's taken them so long just to make this fairly minor uh, advance in in this one part of uh, Donetsk uh, Oblast or one part of the Donbass. Uh, I, I I don't know how much further they can they can realistically expect to go, and part of it I think depends on what the Ukrainians have left after uh, defending this place so intensively. Uh, you know how much is it done to them? And again, it's it's very fog of war to me. I I, uh, I would I would hesitate to to say anything conclusive about how much has been lost here. Well, Derek, you brought up the uh, the the Wagner Group, which is like a Russian mercenary outfit, like on some real uh, dirty dozen shit of like you know <laughs> the, 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 these the, the, I hate these PMC types, and by PMC I don't mean professional <laughs> managerial class. No, I the mean professional military, whatever yeah. whatever psychos that are being recruited into this fucking yeah. Um, no, I, w- I want to bring this up because, like, here this could be like a way to like pierce the, the the fog of war here in terms of like how many casualties are being inflicted on the Wagner Group specifically. They just put up an ad recruiting people on Pornhub. <laughs> uh, it was it was taken up. Oh it, it was taken God. down. It was put up. It was posted and then taken down just this week. It says uh, there's a there's cover from the Daily Mail, but it says the the Rus- Russia's uh, Wagner mercenary group puts ad on Pornhub for new re- recruits. A blonde sucks a lollipop as potential troops are told to join the coolest private army in the world. And then it says uh, we are we are recruiting fighters from all regions of Russia. Don't whack off. Go work for PMC Wagner. Says a woman before the phone number of the Wagner recruiters appears in the middle of the screen. So they're trying to they're trying to cull Russia's incel population and turning the, of, of of chronic masturbators and turning them into fucking cannon fodder in the Donbass. It worked for ISIS. <laughs> I just don't know. I mean, what's the salience of the message? Don't jerk off. Go turn yourself into a human wave. <laughs> Uh, in Bakhmut and get to yeah. s- get you know blown to smithereens instead. That that doesn't seem like a trade off to me. It's not no, if your sad little coming in your basement. It's one. Well, if, big if the nut. orgasm is if the orgasm is the little death, then why exactly. not go for the gusto? Go why, for the big one. Like you've had enough of these little guys to know it doesn't add up to anything. It doesn't hey. satisfy. So get you know, like, one uh, big one. Because you know, after 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 you after you spurt that joy juice, you know you feel degraded and, and depressed. But ima- <laughs> but imagine what getting hit with a fifty caliber bullet feels like. You'll have no fucking f- problem after that. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to experience the war equivalent of jacking off on SSRIs, <laughs> have we got a conflict for you? <laughs> 
<laughs> where you can lose and regain the same place uh, that's named after an Elden Ring character forty times. <laughs> you can you can go sit in a hole dug in the ground in a in a uh, in a lawn chair with like five <laughs> other guys named Yevgeny. Yeah, you can take artillery fire after the leader of Chechnya comes to do a photo shoot every two months. <laughs> and brings his little friend with him. Yeah. I love that. I love how Kadarov is like, he's showing up like pretending to fight in the war every three months. It reminds me of like the game in 2007, the rapper, the game. When he would like purposely get arrested every other month <laughs> you know there's a uh i think next weekend here in la there is a nft web 3 conference and hasbulla is going to be there and william mm. shatner nice let's get those guys together get william shatner and hasbulla together see see what see what comes from get that cooking yeah i mean wagner is an interesting case it's um the one of the the explanations i have actually seen for why the Ukrainians have decided to defend Bakhmut, which is not all that, from what I understand, not all that strategically uh, valuable. Uh, why they've decided to, to defend it so strenuously is because they are trying to wear the Wagner group out. Wagner group fighters, Wagner fighters have been used in these just like human wave attacks. Uh, the, you know, the Russians trying to conserve uh, artillery ammunition, I guess, uh, have stopped. With How does the, that like, translate into the coolest private military in the world? Just like, <laughs> yeah, just test dummies that they just seem, throw at tanks. You know. That doesn't seem very cool. And so, I mean, Wagner Wagner's recruitment for a while uh, was, I mean, they were recruiting people in prisons. They were recruiting people in Russian prisons. Uh, you know, they'd gone from kind of ex-soldiers and kind of you know the traditional the people who should be in types. Prison. Uh, yeah, people should be in prison. And they, they were just like going into prisons and being like, you know, hey, you can get out. You can, you know, make a uh, make a salary. All you have to do is run into gunfire. Um, and, and they were, I mean, you know, have apparently they apparently were successful enough that they've been able to sustain these operations. Now, uh, I think part of the reason maybe they're they're advertising on Pornhub is because supposedly they've been uh, they've been told to stop recruiting in the prisons. Uh, that that could change. The Russians could decide, uh, you know, hey, we need to, we need to get these guys back out and uh, get them into the line of fire again. But um, I think that's rooted in the fact that Prigozhin himself uh, has apparently just a, a ton of beef with uh, people in the Russian military at the highest levels, like uh, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister. Um, you know, he's sort of publicly accused. Uh, the Russian defense ministry of of essentially sandbagging his fighters and trying to get them killed by not providing them with ammunition, not providing them with the, the materiel that they need to sustain these uh, operations. Uh, he's been doing it on his Telegram channel. He's been doing it in you know very public ways, like releasing videos of dead Wagner fighters and you know kind of sort of blaming their deaths on on uh, higher ups in the Russian defense ministry. So I think there's a a political rivalry going on there for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe they're trying to, to kind of, uh, maybe the Russians themselves would like to see this, this group kind of exhaust itself and see its profile diminished. I don't know that, uh, to be the case, but it certainly seems like there's something going on behind the scenes. Hey, Wagner group, uh, don't recruit soldiers from prisons. That's kind of fucked up. Do it, do it from high schools in low income areas. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, what are they doing? Like this is. Uh, this is a tried and true method. I, I don't see the 
uh, see why you would switch. But uh, Derek, I also want to talk about this um, this grain deal and the, its ramifications for this conflict because I, I know you wrote about that. Uh, yeah, so uh, let's talk grain. The black- are these ancient grains? Are these b- biblical style grains? <laughs> no, this is basic stuff. This is wheat. Uh, you know the uh, the very basic stuff. Ukraine uh, and Russia uh, are two of the the biggest exporters of foodstuffs in the world, the grain in particular. Uh, they export all over the world, uh, but especially to places where uh, you may have noticed since the war started, there are you know famines cropping up in places uh, like the Horn of Africa. Now, that's partly due to a very extended drought, but it's also partly due to the fact uh, that they rely on this region for, for uh, grain imports. Uh, and the loss of these imports, the fact that they're not getting to market, has raised food prices. So uh, even relief organizations are struggling to kind of keep up with the uh, with higher prices and to to maintain their operations. So uh, this is one of the big kind of worries uh, uh, when the war started, uh, especially given how much of it is uh, obviously oriented in the Black Sea and how much of Ukraine's grain exports came through the Black Sea, came out of its its ports uh, in the in the Azov Sea and the Black Sea. Uh, so, uh, Turkey and the United Nations brokered a deal. Uh, it's called the Black Sea Grain Initiative for short, uh, in July of last year, uh, whereby the, the Russians are, would agree to kind of, uh, create channels, uh, through the Black Sea to allow Ukraine to ship, uh, grain exports out of its remaining Black Sea ports. So Odessa, uh, there are a few others kind of, uh, you know, kind of west of, of Crimea that, that are still operating. Um, and, and why would Russia, why would Russia assent to um, allowing a country they're at war with to export grain? So this is where, where things have, have gotten uh, dicey. The, one of the, the, the stipulations the Russians wanted was uh, inspections on any ship coming out into or out of the Black Sea, uh, which Turkey agreed to do. Turkey obviously controls access to the Black Sea from the Mediterranean. Um, and that's gone, seems to have gone okay. But, but the other thing that the Russians wanted were uh, assurances that their own food exports would be exempt from U.S. sanctions or Western sanctions uh, more generally, and and that they would be allowed to to resume exports. They have uh, basically, since the deal came into effect, complained that uh, there hasn't been enough done to protect Russian exports. And the Russians export fertilizer, they export their own grain, they export, you know, a number of things that are essential for the uh, kind of worldwide food production. Uh, And they have, as I say, they've been complaining that that not enough has been done to protect those exports uh, from sanctions. Now, uh, you know, as as always, uh, the U.S. line on these things is that food is always exempt uh, from U.S. sanctions, which is bullshit because, uh, the U.S. sanctions banks, and banks are the, the the places where you go to finance exports, export and import agreements. And if the banks are sanctioned, uh, then even if like food exports themselves are n- not directly sanctioned, you've still prevented uh, any means of actually achieving uh, any deal to export food. So, uh, you know, there 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 has been some effort by the U.N. I think. Uh, to try and and improve this situation, but it hasn't been enough for the Russians. So when the initial uh, 120 day period uh, that this initiative was supposed to to cover uh, expired, uh, there was some concern that the Russians would not agree to renew it. 
Uh, and the Ukrainians, you know, there was talk about couldn't we do a longer deal, you know, make it make it a year instead of 120 days, uh, open up more port access, you know, uh, to to uh, to exports. Uh, they wanted to do like a bigger and better, longer and stronger, whatever uh, agreement. And the Russians said, no, we will agree to a straight up 120 day renewal. So, OK, uh, that's better than nothing, certainly. Uh, that second 120 day period is coming up uh, for uh, expiration, uh, I think next month, uh, possibly. I don't know. My math is uh, math is not my strong suit. Uh, the Russians have said uh, that they are willing to renew it again, but only for 60 days, which uh, is, uh, you know, means everybody's going to be white knuckling it. It means that companies that would want to negotiate longer term contracts to export Ukrainian grain are not going to be willing to do that because they don't know, know what's going to happen at the end of that 60 day period. So, uh, this has raised alarms with the U S with the UN, with Ukraine, uh, that th- this, this whole scheme may be going, uh, by the wayside. Uh, and again, the Russian complaint is that they want sanctions relief. They want, their exports to be protected from uh from what the u.s has done to them economically and i guess just like i like take, taking the ukraine russia war in, in in total how would you rate um what effort like what little efforts there have been at diplomacy i mean i know the uk basically sabotaged one diplomatic overture like how, how do you rate the, rate the role of the united states and other parties in attempting or at least pretending to attempt a diplomatic resolution to this conflict? And what would the, like, you know, the outlines of any potential ceasefire or end to this conflict look like? Uh, I mean, it's, it's so hard to know what Ukraine and Russia themselves would be willing to settle for because nobody's going to come out and say, this is how we define victory. And so you don't know if the Russians would be willing at this point to settle for control of the parts of Ukraine they already have. Certainly, I don't think the Ukrainians would be willing to settle for a deal like that. Uh, would the Ukrainians be willing to settle for a deal where the Russians get like Crimea and the Donbass's uh, status is left up in the air? That's uh, less certain, but everybody talks about, you know, we're going to achieve maximum victory. So the Ukrainians talk about driving Russia all the way out of Ukraine. The the, the Russians talk about uh, seizing, you know, all the, the Donbass, which they, they currently have most of it, but not all of it. Um, and it's just difficult between, you know, because there really isn't any diplomacy going on now. Um, it's difficult to know where to, to where they might be willing to draw the line. Uh, in terms of the U S involvement, I think, you know, there hasn't been, I mean, the U S hasn't done much certainly to try and uh, facilitate any kind of diplomacy. They have supposedly, uh, tried to indicate to the Ukrainians that this military spigot, uh, is not going to be on turned on forever at the rate that it's been going. Uh, who believes uh, that? Though <laughs> I, I don't believe it. I, I mean, I think we're still due for more escalation. I think you know all this talk about uh, F-16s, which the Ukrainians want, and Joe Biden has said uh, on multiple occasions we're not going to give them F- F-16s. They're going to get F-16s eventually if this goes on long enough. There's no all question right. in my mind uh, that that's going <laughs> to okay. happen. You keep giving I mean, me those already... big puppy dog eyes. Well. <laughs> I mean, I like, I mean, maybe the bet is like this amazing Russian state media finally takes a hold and we get a Republican trifecta again. This incredible <laughs> Russian state media we've been seeing, the, 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 the in great articles and videos we've, see, we've been seeing, like, you know, 
U.S. opens up uh, trans division one. Uh, U.S. announces trans bomb. U.S. announces trans HBO. I think I feel like I like what you how you put it. You said it was like the Babylon Bee had, you know, three million nuclear warheads. I think that's about right. I was going to say that. Sorry. 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 I can kill. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of uh, speaking of state run media, I I saw something online today about how uh, Victor Orban's like his uh, his sort of like his media outlet in Hungary in the source of about 20 minutes went from being super horned up for Hunter Schaefer to being like man who pretends to be woman shows breasts at Academy Awards. (laughs) There was three versions of the tweet where they were just like. Hot actress shows tits at awarded ceremony to LGBTQ activist bears all at award ceremony to man pretending to be woman shows tits at award ceremony. Rod Dreher was undoubtedly so confused watching that happen. We should get the Hungarians a submarine. They could just like leave it out. They could just look at it. Yeah, uh, I mean, has anyone suggested that as a solution for this war, like bring back the Austro-Hungarian Empire? Like, I, why not? <laughs> like, yeah, why seriously, not? we're not. We should just come out and say it already. Just let let g- g- get the Habsburgs back in there. Somebody call Edward. Get yeah. the, I mean, bring back the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Yes. And let them have yeah. you know, half of Ukraine and, and let Russia have the other half. Yeah, that's all these these creative solutions in history that we could be trying. There's probably a beautiful bulimic woman somewhere <laughs> in Austria or Hungary right now that could unite those peoples. <laughs> you know, uh, whether it's Dalmatia, Austria, Hungary. I don't know the other places in the empire. They seem to be like uh, all the not the actual Nazi countries, all the countries that have like a lower population than Des Plaines, Illinois, but uh, like 100% collaborated during World War II. Yeah, they all have, uh, it, during the war, they were all governed by like a terrifying metal band, you know, yeah. like Arrow Cross, Iron, uh, uh, yeah, all those guys. Yeah, and all the countries that have like seven hundred thousand people and like did the Holocaust with like pitchforks and were told to slow down by the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> they have they have monuments to orcs. That's like their Charlottesville. It's like whether they're going to take down their orc monuments. Um, we, we've taken it. We take, <laughs> We've taken a long trip around the world, but I just want to end out today with a, uh, a short story that um, tickled my fancy. It has, it, you know, it's, it's sort of a local news here in the tri-state area. But trust me when I say this story has almost no international ramifications, but I still found it funny. Headline, New Jersey City admits falling for sister city scam after holding ceremony for fake country. This is Newark fell for the oldest trick in the book, the sister city scam. Now, usually I love it when sister when when cities get sisters, when they when they when they team up and do, I don't know, just visit each other, um, they become pen pals or whatever. But uh, unfortunately, Newark, New Jersey, um, was scammed by, uh, it says here, the city of Newark has reportedly admitted it was scammed into becoming a sister city with a fake Hindu nation. Mayor Ross Baraka invented re- representatives of Kalasa, oh wait, no, Kailasa to Newark City Hall for a cultural trade agreement, according to CBS New York. But Kailasa isn't a real country. 
Kailasa is reportedly the fabrication of a notorious scam artist and fugitive from India who is called Swami Nithyanda. CBS News reported Nithyanda has been on the run from rape charges since 2019. Baraka and Newark were apparently uh, not aware of Kailasa's inauthenticity until the New Jersey city had already held an official ceremony. Footage shows city officials signing documents and taking photographs during the ceremony to become a sister city. So uh, if you are a city or any municipality out there, just be wary of who wants to be your sister. Make sure that yeah. it is a real place. <laughs> so this guy, this guy is a pretty well-known cult leader, and one of his... Um, job descriptions that i saw was god man which i don't know i've never heard of as a job in america i guess in india you can do that but um he's been on the run since 2019 his fake hindu nation uh it's like an ngo and he says that like eventually he's um he's getting a central bank together to issue currency that's based off the 56 original Hindu nations. I mean, it just all sounds like Wu-Tang shit. Like everything he talks about. (laughs) (laughs) But he said, yeah, he said, like, his... Kailasa is supposed to be, like... He says it's the Hindu nation for everyone who isn't allowed to practice Hinduism authentically in their home country, which is, like... Don't you already have like India? Don't like is it? Don't like one point three billion people live Kailasa in India. Was, Why do you need like an Israel for India? This is it was just supposed proving. to be capitalism turns everybody into Protestants, no matter what their religion is. You end up being a Protestant. Like you know uh, why? Why? Why is everything miserable? Why does it suck? We're not doing it right. I'm gonna go find yeah. a fucking uh, island and and do this correctly. We're gonna do real ass Hinduism. Uh, the nation is supposed to be off the coast of Ecuador. But I'm also wondering, like, how is the scam supposed to work? Like, what were they getting out of Newark? <laughs> like, I mean, no one has ever made a fucking cent through Sister Cities. <laughs> yes, Sister right? Cities don't make it, it, it. just It's like just trivia. It's just like something for kids to memorize. Kids who aren't good at spelling bees to memorize. Oh, did you know that uh, Des Moines is sister cities with uh, fucking Dalmatia? You know what's really annoying? There's a lot of cities have multiple sister cities, and to me, then you've lo- what's the point? We're yeah, all sister wait, cities, yeah. man. Yeah, I mean, you, like got half, big, you got a problem with big families? Both, I'm just saying, people have, have multiple like eight, siblings. You should you should take it seriously if you're going to do it. Like exchange people like in, in large numbers like create little <laughs> little model versions of your forced repopulation where Let's like do you, it. you transfer population and they live there among you so it's sort of like wife swap on abc yes <laughs> uh well uh, uh well I, I don't know if you guys I, I i sent an email about this i didn't get a reply but i have I have pledged, let's just say, a significant chunk of our monthly Patreon to the nation of Hyperborea <laughs> and Agartha, the hollow earth city. <laughs> I hope that I hope that pays off for it. I put I put a lot of stuff in uh, uh, Tesla a few years ago, and, and I'm sure that's doing well. I haven't checked the stock price, but uh, I'm sure this guy should be trying to find Lemur- and- uh, Lemuria. He's Indian, after all. And the, going into the, the Iraqi Atlantic. dinar. That's, that's I'm, Atlantis. I'm, Get out of here. You know, yeah, the, the I, dinar I have, is coming. I still coming. have a bunch. I got a, a bunch of Iraqi dinars from somebody a few years ago. I'm still waiting. The revaluation is coming. All, all it takes coming, is, is uh, you know, Trump, being re- Trump 
going to be president again, and we're, he, we're he, on board. He, he, he allowed himself to be removed from office to, to test our faith, and those who didn't <laughs> lose it will be rewarded with the RV when he becomes president again. <laughs> well, uh, to, any, to any of our listeners in Kailasa, uh, I, I would like to apologize on behalf of the show for uh, denigrating your nation. Yeah, we <laughs> apologize. Right. Wait, just, right. sorry. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to burn any bridges here. Uh, all right. Uh, I think that does it for us today. I want to thank uh, Derek Davison again for joining us and uh, taking us on this little trip around the world. But uh, Derek, if people want more foreign exchanges or more Derek podcasts, what should they do? Where should they go? Yeah, foreign exchanges, fx.substack.com. Uh, please check it out um, if you if you haven't already. Um, and then the podcast that I do with Danny Bessner, American Prestige, American Prestige Pod, all one word, dot com. Uh, you can check us out there or, uh, you know, it's uh, available wherever you uh, listen to podcasts. And yes, uh, check out Foreign Exchanges. It is like getting your personal presidential daily briefing, your PDB from Derek. All right. Um, until next time, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.